the teaching of God's holy word. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, there's an old joke amongst paratroopers, and it goes like this. Why would anyone in his right mind choose to jump out of a perfectly serviceable airplane? Some people do. They jump out of perfectly good functioning aircraft. Paratroopers do it for combat objectives. Skydivers do it for fun. But for most of us, when we think of a parachute, we think of something which is a last resort to save your life when your plane is not working properly. For instance, when it's on fire and it's going down. And in such an emergency, it's all or nothing. You can't do things by half measure. If you're going to leap clear of the flaming wreckage of your aircraft, if you're going to push the a button which will eject your seat clear of the aircraft and your, your parachute deploys, then your life will be saved. But you can't do it halfway. You can't stay at the controls trying to save yourself and also try to deploy your parachute at the same time. You can't push the ejection button for the ejection seat and then try to hold onto the controls and, and still fly the aircraft. That's not going to work. You have to give up everything. You have to give up control. You have to jump, trusting that the parachute will save you. Now, Lord's Day 11 reminds us that our life of sin is like a plane which is on fire, plummeting towards a fiery crash to the ground below. And there is only one way to escape. It's an all or nothing thing. We have to give up trying to fix our own lives and control our own lives. We have to abandon the flaming wreck of our life of sin. We have to take a leap of faith, trusting that Christ alone will save us. And in Lord's Day 11, we come to confess this scriptural truth. That the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is our Savior who saves us from all our sins. Now, if you flip one page back in your psalm book, on page 524, you'll see the 12 articles of the Christian faith, and you'll notice that we're on Article 2. And, and Lord's Day 11 is focusing right on that name, Jesus so as we're going through these Lord's Days in this section of the Catechism, it's good to remember that what we're doing is studying the meaning of what we say and confess every Sunday when we sing or recite the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is that beautiful, concise summary of the great foundational truths of the Christian faith. It's a beautiful summary of the entire narrative of Scripture. It begins with, creation and ends with the life everlasting. And it is what unites us with every believer. You, you cannot be a Christian without confessing these 12 cardinal truths. And so we're at Article 2, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord. And in Lord's Day 11, the church calls our attention to his name, 
Jesus. He has that name by the command of God. You remember that the angel came to Joseph and said, you're going to have a son. Well, Mary's going to have a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Well, the angel explains. For he will save his people from their sins. Now, the name that God, through the angel, commanded Joseph to give to the newborn baby was a fairly common name. It was a fairly common name, which at the same time was a confession of faith. The name in Hebrew, as many of us know, was Joshua. And Joshua means Yahweh is salvation, or Yahweh saves. And there were lots of people called Joshua in the people of God, even in Jesus' time in the first century. In Greek, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word Joshua is translated in, in the Greek word Jesus, which is Jesus in English. So if you would grab a, a, a Greek Bible, a modern Greek Bible, and you would open it up to the list, the index of books, you would see that they have the, the Greek versions of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then the sixth book in the Greek Bible, even in modern Greek, is called Jesus, because that's what Joshua is in Greek. And so in the Greek Bible, the modern Greek Bible, they put Jesus, the son of none, so that we know that it refers to Joshua. But that's kind of interesting that the Old Testament in Greek, the sixth book, is called Jesus. Now, last week when we considered the, the love of God as portrayed before us in the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ, we, we talked about the fact that when we read of the love of God in the Scriptures, we can think of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the very expression, the highest expression of the love of God. And this week, children, as, as, as we consider the meaning of the name Jesus, it's good to think of this fact that when you're reading through the Bible and you see the word Savior or salvation, these point to and speak of our Lord. They speak of who he is and what he came to do. Now we turn in the scriptures in our background reading to Isaiah chapter 62. And you remember that Isaiah is preaching way before the exile and he's already preaching about coming back from exile. He's preaching forgiveness and restoration before the punishment has happened. That's how much God loves his people. That's how much God loves to forgive. We're in the second part of Isaiah. And, and at chapter 40, there's this big change that happens. At chapter 40, those well-known words which are in the Handel's Oratorio, the Messiah, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare, warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. So that's the context of the second half of the book. It is mainly renewal, restoration, forgiveness, redemption, coming back home. God has disciplined his wayward people. But his heart is burdened not with anger, but with love and compassion for his people. And that's why we read that, right, in verse 10 of chapter 62. God says, let's make things happen here. Get the road ready so that my people can return. Level the road so that they can 
journey back from exile and go back home. But already built into this, and we saw that this morning as well, already built into this return, is a picture of a greater and more glorious truth. And you see that in verse 11, if you have your Bible handy, uh, chapter 62, verse 11, because the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth. This is something for the whole world to know. This is something, in other words, of cosmic and universal importance. What does the whole world need to know? Well, look at there in verse 11. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, your Joshua comes. Behold, your Jesus comes. And we need to understand. For the Old Testament people of God, the promised land, Jerusalem, the temple, they were pictures of heaven. They were pictures of of coming back to live in fellowship with God, living in God's presence. And the enemies attacking in the Old Testament are pictures of sin and the powers of darkness attacking, infiltrating, harassing, destroying. What does Yahweh, our salvation, save us from? Well, he saves us from our enemies. Now, the lesson that God's people learned up until the exile was that the great royal house of David could not save us from our enemies. I mean, for a while, they mainly did in the time of David and Solomon, but even then there were still enemies harassing God's people. But the house of David, the royal house of David, was not able to completely, definitively, permanently deal with the enemies of God's people. There was built into the whole history of the Old Testament a longing for the great son of David, the great king to be born in Bethlehem, the royal city of David, the one who would definitively crush and conquer our enemies and set us free and save us. And that that work of definitively destroying the enemies is pictured in Old Testament terms in the beginning of chapter 63, which we read together, that that scene of that victorious warrior splattered in the blood of his enemies because he has destroyed them totally. Now, he's coming from Edom. And why would he be coming from Edom? Well, to understand that, we need to go to the book of Psalms. We need to go to Psalm 137. You remember that Psalm 137 by the waters of Babylon? There we sat down and wept. It's when we remembered Zion, it's, a, it's, a, it's an exile psalm. And then look at the end of that psalm in verse 7. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. What happened when Jerusalem was destroyed? What happened when the temple was destroyed? Edom, who is Israel's brother, these are the, these are the descendants of Esau. They're supposed to be family. And the Edomites were just loving it. They were laughing and they were participating. Oh, you missed one here. They were helping the Babylonians as God's people were massacred, as the children, the little infants were slain in the most gruesome way possible. And as the temple was destroyed, the Edomites were laughing about it. And they were making sure that it was happening. And that's why 
in Isaiah chapter 63, the focus is on the Edomites as the most, the kind of the sharpest thing in Israel's memory of their enemies, those who are against them. There's this, it's fresh in their collective memory, the betrayal, the desire for total destruction that they saw in the Edomites. And so God gives them the picture of the messianic king who is mighty to save. And he comes marching in the greatness of his strength. He has conquered and no one has helped him. He's done it himself. Look there in verse 3. I have trodden the winepress alone. And look there in verse 5. I looked and there was none to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation. And here, as so many times throughout the scriptures, God is driving home to us the sovereignty of God and salvation, that salvation is of the Lord and of him alone. Now, how did his arm bring him salvation? Well, keep reading. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. This is a picture of total destruction and conquest of the enemies of the people of God. But remember that it's not just about physical enemies here. It's a very, very simple picture for the Old Testament church, who is still a child, but there's something deeper behind it. The picture of these enemies is the picture of the, the worst enemy of God's people, which is sin. And so that trampling reminds us of Micah chapter 7. Micah 7 verse 19, where the, the, the prophet says this, He will turn again and have compassion upon us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot, and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depth of the sea. That's the worst enemy of God's people. Their sins, they need to be trampled underfoot and destroyed. And the New Testament says it in this way in Colossians chapter 2 verse 13, where the apostle writes this, you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, that is in Christ. That is the message of the scriptures. That is the gospel, that God in the abundance of his compassion and steadfast love, has made us his children, has saved us from our enemies, has destroyed sin and death. And that's why I look at verse 8 there of chapter 63 of Isaiah. He says, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. He became their Jesus. Now, the Old Testament enemies were physical in the first place, as we've said. They were always trying to bring Israel into bondage. They were trying to separate them from God's ways, from God's presence, from the worship of God. The enemies were trying to tempt God's people, to cause them to go astray. And God's people were not able to save themselves. Over and over and over, they fell to their enemies. 
But God never gave up on them. Look at verse 9 of chapter 63. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. Who, who is this angel of the presence of God? The angel of the Lord, who often, usually in the Old Testament, represents the pre-incarnate Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, before he was made flesh at his birth in the first century. This is Jesus actively saving his people time and time and time again, every time they messed up, every time they strayed, every time they fell down, every time they stumbled. Christ, Jesus the Savior, was there as the angel of God's presence. And that's a picture of God and his love and pity. See that verse 9 there? He's redeeming them. He lifts them up. He carries them all the days of old. He never gave up on them. And how did they respond? Well, look at verse 10. But they rebelled. And they grieved his Holy Spirit. And so what would happen? Well, then God would discipline them. He would, he would become their enemy. He would, he would send punishment and put them under covenant discipline for a time. But then over and over and over, he would come back to that foundational truth upon which the people of God and the church of God is built. He would remember the days of old. He would remember those words with which, which we hear every Sunday morning, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I have set you free. I am your God. You are my people. I led you through the waters, out of bondage, into the freedom of the law of love at Mount Sinai. I led you, my people, for the sake of my glorious name. That's the hope story of the Old Testament. God loving, God redeeming, God forgiving, God drawing his people back, his people sinning, his people falling, his people going astray, God punishing and disciplining them, and then God having mercy and compassion and drawing them back to himself over and over and over. And that is a picture of the big story. That's the picture of your story, of my story. God has saved you. God has drawn you out of the house of bondage to sin. He's brought you through the Red Sea, the waters of baptism. He's brought you into a new relationship with his will in the law of love in the Lord Jesus Christ. We confess it in Lord's Day 1. He has set me free from all the power of the devil. That's another way of saying he has saved us from all our sins. Before, we had to listen to sin. We had to sin because we're in bondage to it. Now, we can say no to sin. It's not our master anymore. We have a new master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that all sounds very nice, doesn't it? But we keep sinning. And we, that bothers us. And we say, well, why do I still sin? If Jesus has set me free, if Jesus has paid for all my sins, has saved me from all my sins, why is it that I don't do what I want to do? 
But the things that I don't want to do, I do. And we, we feel that ang anguish of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7 when even the great apostle is honest about his struggle with sin. He says, I'm a pretty useless Christian when it comes down to it because I keep doing things that I know I shouldn't do. And then the things that I want to do for God's glory, I end up not doing. And that, that puts him into a state of anguish. And he cries out there at the end of Romans 7, who will deliver me from this body of death? I hate this sinful body that I'm in. I don't want to live like this. Who's going to save me from this? And then he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's the one who saves us from all our sins. You see, when you are in Christ, you sin, yes. But sin is not who you are. Sin is not your identity. Jesus is your identity. And I want to give you an example, which I hope helps you to, to think this through, helps us to think this through. Think of Rahab. Rahab was a Canaanite. Rahab was a part of a, the people living in the land of Canaan that God had waited for the measure of their sin and wickedness to be filled up. They were under the righteous judgment of God. They were consigned to total destruction. So Rahab was a Canaanite, part of a people that was a living and walking and breathing picture of sin. It had to be destroyed and wiped off the face of the earth. But then God took Rahab. And he drew her out of that. And he changed her. He converted her heart. He gave her faith. He brought her into his people. And her identity changed. Because before, her identity was Canaanite, child of wrath, condemned to destruction. But now, she had a new identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. Her new identity was to be God's child. And now think about the difference that makes for her relationship with Canaanites. It used to be that Rahab would say, I'm a Canaanite. That's who I am. But now, when she is in God's people, when she's been saved, Canaanites are not who she is. But Canaanites are her enemy too. What she used to be is now her enemy. And that is how it works with us and with sin. We were Rahab's. We were members of a people under the ban of destruction. That is who we were outside of Christ. Children of wrath. Sin was our identity. But now things have changed. You have been set free. You are redeemed. You are God's child now. And now your identity is in Jesus. Sin is no longer who you are. But sin is now your enemy. And there is a battle raging as sin harasses you and attacks you and tries to knock you off the right path and tries to tempt you and tries to draw you astray and tries to block your progress as you grow in holiness and sanctification and seek the Lord. Sin is on one side of this battle, and you are on the other side. And God is on your side. He's not against you. You don't have to first beat sin, and then God will love you. That's not how it works. God is not angry with you, child of God. 
God is not angry with you for your sins. God is on your side. You can't beat sin. You can't overcome your enemies. There is only one Savior, and it's not you, it's not me. But we are more than conquerors in this battle in our Lord Jesus Christ, who saves us from all our sins. Now, when we sang Psalm 17, did you feel uncomfortable? You remember what we sang there? Psalm 17? Did you raise an eyebrow? Did you think, now, now, David, you should really be reading some Reformed theology about total depravity, because I'm not sure you've got things right here. Look what he says. Lord, hear me plead a righteous cause. With blameless lips I come before you. Rescue one who loves your laws. Silence every accusation. I look to you for vindication. Test my inner thoughts and feelings. You will find no evil in me. My mouth does not commit transgression. David is coming to God saying, God, I am a very good person. In fact, you can go right deep into the innermost parts of my heart and you will find no evil. What is going on here? Why can David talk like that? Because he knew the gospel. He knew even in the types and the shadows of the Old Testament, he knew the gospel of Jesus, that Yahweh saves us from all our sins. He saw it in the shadows and the types of the Old Covenant. He knew he was clean and righteous and holy and pure and acceptable before God because he knew his sins were dealt with. Because he was taking part in the Old Testament worship and he was bringing his offerings and his sacrifices and the blood was flowing and he knew those bulls and those goats and those animals couldn't forgive his sins. But he knew that they pointed to the fact that God can forgive his sins and does. And so as he lived in faithful communion with God and covenant communion with God, David knew, not in himself, not by his own power, but because of the grace of God and because of the compassionate love and covenant faithfulness of God, David knew the truth that we confess in Lord's Day 11, that he saves us from all our sins. That's an incredible way to live, brother and sister. As we're attacked by sin and temptation in so many ways, it's an incredible way to live, to lift up your head and to look towards heaven to say, God, in your sight, I am holy, righteous, pure, and acceptable. David could say that. He didn't know half of what we know about the gospel. We know so much more, and we have so much more reason to be certain that we have been saved from all our sins. We don't need to fix our lives. You know, if you're trying to fix your life, if you're trying to become a better person so God likes you more, you've got, to, you've got to stop that because you can't do it. You have to give up on that. You have to simply give up. And you need to throw yourself into the everlasting arms of the Son of God and cry out to Him, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, have mercy on me. And the gospel comes to you. And we're going to sing about that in a moment in Psalm 34. The gospel comes to you. The Lord hears your plea. He sets you free from all your worries and fears. 
The angel of the Lord always encamps around all those who fear him. Blessed is the man who turns to him and puts in him his trust. Brother, sister, are you feeling overwhelmed by temptation and by sin and by guilt? Well, the scripture says this, the righteous cry for help. And God in mercy hears their pleas. The Lord is always near. The brokenhearted, he will heal. Those crushed in spirit, he will save. To them, his love reveal. The scripture says, a bruised reed, he will not break. A smoking wick, he will not snuff out. What does that mean? It means this, that if you think, Lord, I'm not a really good Christian, God will say, yeah, you're not. But Christ is a perfect Christ. You may say, Lord, I have such a miserable example of, of what it is to be your child. And God will say, yes, I know. But Christ is a perfect example of what it is to be my child. And you are in him. And when I look at you, I don't look at you in your sins. Because Jesus has saved you from all your sins. I look at you in your new identity. And when I look at you, my son, my daughter, I see Jesus in all his righteousness, in all his holiness, in all his obedience in all his goodness. And I love you as much as I love him. That's the gospel. God's love for you doesn't depend on how good you are doing. It doesn't depend on how good your faith is or how strong your faith is. God's love for you is certain unchanging, unfailing, unconditional, eternal, because God's love for you depends upon the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Nothing you do as a believer, no matter how badly you mess up, can change who you are in Christ Jesus. Jesus, who saves us from all our sins. Not some of them, not most of them, but all of them. We're having the Lord's Supper. I'm not sure if you noticed, but I try to really emphasize that. His blood, his body were given to redeem us, to, make, to, to forgive us from all our sins. The Bible says this, Jesus, our great high priest who is able to save us to the, uh, sorry, Jesus is our great high priest who is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And so we can go to the Father, child of God, and we can ask him for help in that battle against sin and the flesh. And we can go to him no matter what sin is assailing us. No matter what sin is attacking us, no matter what sin is clinging to us and trying to suck the life out of us, we can go to him. Go to him quickly. Go to him often. Know that he will never turn you away. And that every time you go to the Father through the Son, Jesus will say, yes, Father. Also that sin I paid for. Also that sin is taken care of. Brother and sister, there is no other hope. There is no other way 
There is no other Savior. Go to God, clinging by faith to his promises in Jesus Christ our Lord. Those who take refuge in him, he will never condemn. Amen.